Now, what I am uh, distributing and coming around um, is an attempt by a friend of mine to give a visualization to what is in part of Chapter 21, all right? So, uh, and I, honestly, if you don't have some kind of visual, um, the descriptive phrases that really starts in, in verse 9 of Chapter 21 and goes through a good chunk of the rest of that chapter, this is just an attempt to give a visualization to it. Do you understand what I'm doing? So we're not quite there yet, but when we get to verse 9, I'll just point this out to you um, as kind of a reference. And then what uh, I'm going to try to do after that, because really what we have left is relatively, and that's what chapter 21 and 22 really are, are very condensed uh, descriptions of the new heaven and the new earth and what is, uh, what is going on in those. So... Um, what I'd like to do is, is get started, and we'll see. I may not get this finished, so that means next week then we'll, we'll, we'll have Mark's uh, presentation, and then we'll, we'll come back in two weeks if I don't finish it. But as you know, at least I think you know, because I, uh, I mentioned it, and I, I'm not sure I can recall if Fred sent those note packets out or not, but we are going to begin a study of Genesis then. So we're going to go from the end of all things to the beginning of all things, which I... I came up with that on my own. I kind of thought that was a good idea. So that's what we're going to do, and I hope that'll be a blessing, because the book of Genesis, <clears throat> especially the first 11 chapters, are not studied very often. And we're going to try to really do an in-depth study of, of, uh, of the importance of those chapters, as well as the rest of the book of Genesis. Look at verse 1 of chapter 21, book of Revelation. And here again we see that key phrase, and I saw. We have followed that throughout, really throughout the whole book, but particularly these last two chapters, because that helps us to get an understanding of what I think is rather clear. Not everyone necessarily agrees with that, but what is clear is you just have a series of events, one event followed by another event, followed by another event, followed by another event. And that's what John is, is doing here. So he says, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed, away, earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. Now, let's talk about that for just a minute. First of all, I want to focus on the phrase, new heaven and new earth. This is not the first time in the Bible that that phrase is used. It is the first time it's been used in the book of Revelation. But the phrase, a new heaven and a new earth, is used three other times in the Bible. In Isaiah chapter 65 in Isaiah chapter 66, and in 2 Peter chapter 3. <coughs> Excuse me. And in all three of those cases, the two in Isaiah and the one in 2 Peter 3, it is giving focus to the end of history, to the end of time. So it's because of the sequence of what we've been studying in the book of Revelation, we would then, I think, correctly conclude that this is the eternal state. In other words, you have all of the events that we've been discussing about the return of Jesus and the binding of Satan and all of that, the, the kingdom of Jesus that ruled uh, for a thousand years. So as that is all completed, and then as the great white throne, which is the last part of chapter uh, 20, is concluded, then the final aspect of God's redemptive plan is the new heaven and new earth. 
And the way it is described, and we're going to be looking at that in just a minute, it is very clear is this is, let me put it another way, this is the full restoration of what was lost in Adam. You understand what I'm saying? Because when God creates earth, and, and we're going to be studying that in, in a couple of weeks, when God creates the earth and, and creates humanity as his image bearers to be his dominion stewards over his world, the challenge is they then rebel against him, which is what chapter 3 is all about in the rest of the Bible. So what you see now is the descriptions of part of what is the new heaven and new earth will remind you of what the description of Genesis 2 which is the Garden of Eden over which Adam is to have rule and sovereign dominion, uh, dominion authority, not sovereign authority. So it's like what was lost in Adam due to rebellion and sin is regained in Christ. So this is the perfection, and this is the, um, the, the beauty of, of all that God had desired for his image bearers. But when they chose rebellion, he had to win them back. And that is what the whole redemptive plan is all about. Now, did I lose you with those statements? Or are you with me? So it's like these are the bookends of the Bible. This bookend, this book is, is creation and Eden. This end, this final book, is the new heaven, new earth. And what's in between is rebellion and how God deals with that. Now we're back to, uh, I guess you could say, again, the reason God created his world and his image bearers. But this time it will be in perfection and in pure righteousness because he will have made us all righteous through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son. The other thing I want to comment on is not only the importance of that phrase, but the importance of this term that we translate new. Now, the Greek word for this is kine. I usually don't I mean, I usually don't get into this kind of depth with with the original language, but I think it's really important to to stress this because um, what does he mean by new? Does it mean he is going to completely incinerate everything in the old earth and the old heaven and create, or does it mean He's going to take the uh, heaven and earth, which had uh, borne the effects of sin and rebellion from the human race, and remake it, recreate it. Do you understand the difference? And so it, it does seem, and this is obviously not an original thought with me, and I comment a little bit on this in the notes. Kine is a Greek word that means, focuses on the quality of something. <clears throat> so if, if you say uh, that is a... Your car really looks new to me, and it might be a 1957 Chevy, which is really a neat Chevy if you know anything about old cars. So it's obviously it's not a new car in the sense it just came off the, the assembly line, but it's new in terms of its quality. You have kept it well. You've replaced all the old parts. You've put a new engine in it. Do you see what I'm saying? You have remade, recreated Restored. something like yeah, restored. That's, that's, I'm using the word recreated intentionally, but restored is another way of, 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 of phrasing and helping us to understand probably what is intended by the use of the word kine, new. It's a restored, renewed, recreated, remade earth. 
Now, not everybody agrees with that. This is, uh, but I would, I'm pretty certain that is probably the majority of expositors. This is how they see it. Now, uh, part of what causes people to think, well, we ought to turn back to that. Part of what causes people to think, or at least some people to think, is uh, that this is going to be completely destroyed and God's going to remake it. I mean, he's going to create, recreate a whole new world. This is in Second um, uh, Second Peter, <clears throat> in verse um, 3, chapter 3, uh, maybe I'll just start with verse 11 and read through verse 13. Again, I just, this is where some people conclude, and I want to talk about that in a minute. Now, we're jumping into the middle of something that Peter's discussing, but we have to do that. I can't possibly go through this whole chapter. So verse 11, chapter 3, the book is 2 Peter. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought there to be in holy conduct and godliness? What is he talking about? Look at verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. And so he says, then verse 13, But according to his promise, we are looking for new heaven and new earth in which righteousness dwells. So, now if you're following, you see that phrase, new heaven and new earth, in verse 13. But in verse 10, Peter is talking about the elements being destroyed, tense heat, burning up, and so on. Again, how do we think about that? And this is where the real discussion is about what's the nature of this new. One of the things to think about here is that in the Bible, I think always, but I better maybe say almost always, because I, I didn't go through every passage before class today, Whenever God tempers something with heat and fire, it is both judgment and purging, judgment and cleansing. So it's a subtle nuance, but I'm trying to get you to think the way the entire scriptures often approach this, so that it is probable that what Peter is saying using the metaphor of judgment, uh, or of, of heat and of fire and of judgment, is that God is purging and cleansing his world from the sin and rebellion. That is a little bit different than completely annihilating everything. I don't know what other word to use, but you know what I mean. I mean, incinerating, just absolutely destroying everything, and then creating everything all over again. Most people say that's that's... You're making this verse say more than it's really saying. That if God is not necessarily saying here he's going to incinerate and destroy, annihilate absolutely everything, and then absolutely create everything over, instead he's purging it and cleansing it and will then recreate it or renew it. That's the nature of the kine new. So, you know, I, unless you want me to, that's all I have to say about that, as Forrest Gump said 21 years ago. So it's it's a it's a little bit of a debate in in the uh, in the way people think about write about and preach about this passage Revelation chapter twenty one verse twenty one, but I, I'm trying to get you to see a little bit of perhaps how new should be understood. God is going to recreate, renew, restore His world, cleansing it. 
And part of what many suggest, and I suggested that last week, is that is one of the purposes of the millennial kingdom of Christ, is to cleanse the earth, recreate, restore it during that thousand-year reign of Christ. Then go back to the notes, you'll see that. So, unless you have any questions, I'm going to move on. But I wanted you to get a little bit of the discussion that's in back of that. I'm a little puzzled. It says there is no sea. Uh, well, we didn't get there yet. I'm gonna, right. I'll get to that in just a minute. Right. Okay. <laughs> but I want to. I'm trying to get make, one, the importance of the phrase "new heavens, new earth," and second, the importance of the term "new." So, did I help you enough to think about that? It's. It's really. It's even if God does absolutely annihilate everything and completely create a whole new world, it's still exciting to think about. <laughs> it's. You know, it's an exciting thing because this is your destiny. If you belong to the Lord Jesus, this is your destiny. And this is what, um, this, this is what you're going to uh, be for the rest of eternity, what you will be enjoying. And uh, um, it's part of the heritage and, and inheritance and blessing and promise that God has made to you. I, can get, I know we don't get excited about biblical truth in this class, but I can really get excited about that because, you know, you just see, you see the effects of sin and rebellion on everything. But when that is removed and cleansed and purged, and again, I think that's one of the purposes of God's uh, Christ's millennial kingdom, uh, that's all going to be gone. Being slightly facetious. Spending an eternity in Nebraska is not exactly what I anticipated. <laughs> eternity in heaven... Well, um, I've asked the Lord, Jim, uh, th- that I could spend eternity in Bavaria. That's where I would like to spend eternity. <clears throat> and if you don't know where Bavaria is, and I've even been specific, I'd love to have my home in Neuschwanstein. And again, if you are familiar with that part of that's uh, when Disney did the movie Cinderella, Cinderella's Castle or wherever she lived, that's modeled after Neuschwanstein in Bavaria. So anyway, uh, I would even think Nebraska might look a little different in the new heavens and new earth. So, <clears throat> There's no longer any sea. John asked about that. In the scriptures, and you saw that over in chapter 3, verse 1. <clears throat> Not 3, excuse me, 13, verse 1. Let me just go back to that. And he stood on the sand of the seashore, and I saw the beast coming up out of the sea. And his horns were ten diadems, and so on. <clears throat> the sea is used metaphorically, and uh, you'll see that in the book of Genesis next week. But it's also in this book of Revelation. The sea is a symbol of disorder and chaos. It is the disorder and chaos centered on the human rebellion and Antichrist in chapter 3, 13, verse 1 and following comes out of the sea, comes out of that source of chaos and disorder. It does not mean, I don't think, that there's no water. What it means is the source of chaos and disorder (coughs) is gone. Daniel chapter 7, verse 3 refers to sea in that way, as well as chapter 13, verse 1. And again, this is not an original thought with me, but what John is saying as he writes what the Spirit wants him to say, there's no longer any disorder or chaos. There's no longer any rebellion. It's over. You follow me? 
And that is consistent with the use of that term in book, book of Daniel in chapter 7 and here in the book of Revelation. The sea, metaphorically, is the source of disorder and chaos. In the new heaven and new earth, it'll be perfectly orderly and completely absent of all chaos. <clears throat> now, what will be the capital of the new heaven and new earth? Well, verse 2 tells us the new Jerusalem. And I saw, now again, again that I saw, I saw, I saw, I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride, notice the simile, as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Again, same word, kine, new in their quality and nature. Now let's back up for a minute. The New Jerusalem is going to be described in some detail in verse 9 and following. But notice how this is described. And the tabernacle of God is among men. And he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people. And God himself shall be among them. What is that telling us? That all of the barriers are completely broken down. And God now comes down and dwells with humanity because we have been made new through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Now, there's no sin because God cannot dwell with sin, but there's no sin, there's no rebellion, there's no chaos, there's no disorder. And so God is now dwelling with his people, which is what you saw in Genesis chapter 2, where Adam and Eve walk with God in the garden. Why did God stop doing that? Because of Genesis 3, because of sin and rebellion. That has been taken care of through the cross. And now, with everything made new, God dwells with his people. So what will human life and our glorified, resurrected bodies be like in the new heavens and new earth, in the new Jerusalem? Verse 4, there'll be no more tears. And that means all that which causes us to be sad and mourn and, and cry and all of that out of, out of the chaos of life will be gone because it will no longer be disorder no longer be chaos, no longer be sin, no longer be rebellion. So the source of everything that brings tears will be gone. My father, he's almost 92, but my father loves Tennessee Ernie Ford, and I'm sure none of you know who he is. But he's an old gospel singer, and my dad just, and my dad has a record of his. I think he has several, but anyone. One of the records has Tennessee Ernie Ford singing No Tears in Heaven. It's an old gospel song. And it comes from this, uh, this phrase in, in verse 4. 
In addition, there shall no longer be any death. Remember, death means two things in the Bible. Metaphorical and literal. Metaphorical, separation from God. Physical, separation from God physically. So it's, uh, it's, all of that's gone. The penalty for sin, which is death, has been completely satisfied when Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead. Therefore, there will no longer be any death. Death is associated with sin, always. It'll be gone. And then continuing, there should be no longer any mourning or crying or pain. My left knee won't ache anymore. I'm blind in my left eye due to a childhood accident. I'll be able to see out of both eyes. I'm not going to wake up with the kind of the aches and pains that I have as a 68-year-old man. I'm not going to, I mean, on and on, because every one of you could talk about the same kinds of things. It's all gone. No more crying or mourning. Mourning, mourning results from grief and death and sadness and tragedy. Not in the new heavens and new earth. The first things have passed away. The entire old order of things is gone. Now, again, I know we, we don't get excited about biblical truth here, but isn't that an exciting thought? It's an energized, incredible part of what God has promised to you. And if you put your faith in Christ, this, this is going to describe you in his, in his new heaven and new earth. Hallelujah. Yeah, thank you. That's, uh, it's all right to say that once every seven years. So <laughs> then he who's sitting on the throne says, I am making all things new. Everything that I created, this is God speaking in effect, that has borne the sin, the evidence of the sin of the human race, all that is a part of the curse and all that is a part of that that effect is gone. It's been purged. And he said, write these words because they're faithful and true. And then he says, it is done. Now that's, a, that's in, in verse 6 there. That phrase, it is done. Just think about that for a minute. What's the it refer to? Because it's a neuter pronoun. So it, what's it referring to? It's not referring to a person male or female, it's referring to something. It. What is the it? What's done? His work. All his promises. Let's, let's <clears throat> lift it up to a higher... His, his what plan? What plan? His redemptive plan. I mean, that's right, his plan. But it's whole... Everything from God's perspective, that doesn't mean that God is interested in all the things that are going on in our world, and he is, he's sovereign, but the focus of God in human history is redemptive. That's his primary focus. And so, again, it doesn't mean that he isn't concerned and isn't involved in everything else, but that's his primary pur purpose. And so I think you guys are right who said that. His plan, it's his redemptive. It is now completed. With the, with the uh, new heavens and new earth, the redemptive plan of God of winning, if you will put it back this way, Winning back the human race that's in rebellion through the cross, through the resurrection, through the second coming, all those things that are part of it, the new glorified resurrection, it's done. There's nothing more that needs to be done. And again, it's, it's just the ushering in 
of now the eternal state. So he says, the beginning and the end, I will give to the one who thirsts for the spring of the water of life without cost. He overcomes, shall inherit these things. Remember, overcome takes you back to First John chapter 5. That word overcome is those who have put their faith in Christ. That's the overcomer by definition. And I will be his God and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the immoral persons, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars, this part will be in the lake that burns with fire, brimstone, which is the second death. Verse 8 is a reminder. There will be absolutely no evil, no sin in the new heavens and new earth. It will all have been cast into the lake of fire. Does that mean we'll be perfect once we have these new bodies? Yes. Now, I hesitated for just a second because it depends on what you mean by perfect. But, I mean, sinless, you know, glorified bodies, as you meant. Uh, so, yes, yes, the way we usually mean. Because perfect really means complete. Uh, so, yes, yes. That's, again, it's, it's reasonably exciting for us to think about this. All right. Yes, John. There would have been no need for a redemptive plan if Adam and Eve had not sinned. That's exactly right. right. That's exactly uh, right. But did God contemplate that they weren't going to sin, or was that just something that they did which kind of caused caught, all this? Caught God off guard? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, John, you're asking one of those uh, really huge questions. Uh, but I think the only way, the only way to think about that is um, when God made the decision to create. I mean, if we can speak of God like that, but when God made the decision to create, you know, the physical universe and then create life and then create humanity, which it tells us in verse 26 of Genesis one, bearing His image, we're creating His image. Um, Again, if we can say God thinks like this, he thought, okay, what are they going to be like? Am I going to create human beings who will bear my image as like automatons and robots, and at my command they do what I want them to do? Or am I going to create human beings to be my image bearers to choose to love me, worship me, and walk with me? Well, obviously, which did he choose? And so, therefore, to choose to worship, love, and walk with him as a corollary to it. What is it? Choose not to. That they will choose not to do it. Now, I don't, I don't like the fr phrase free will, one, because it's not in the scriptures, and has such a connotation today. So let's put it this way. Did God choose to create humanity as his image bearers with responsible freedom? Yes. And the answer to that is yes. The responsible freedom. Because when you say free will, it almost sounds like autonomous with God being contingent and totally disconnected from the human decision. That doesn't seem to be the right way to think about it. So uh, the way the Bible talks about it. So that responsible freedom is... God, in effect, says, I am creating image bearers, humans, to be my dominion stewards. And I want to walk with them, and I want to fellowship with them. The love and communion that the Father, Son, and Spirit have enjoyed for all eternity, God wants to share with his image bearers. 
But that means they could choose rebellion. And God in his omniscience knew they would. So as it says throughout the scriptures in both Old and New Testament, before the foundation of the world, God hatched his redemptive plan. Hatched isn't a biblical word, that's my word, but put together his redemptive plan. And so, and this, this, is a, this is a logical inference we draw from Scripture. It doesn't tell us that God knew that we were going to rebel, and therefore God, and that's not what it, it doesn't say it that way, but everything the Bible says is clear. God understood what he was doing. He knew the risk of creating responsibly free human beings, and he knew they would choose. Therefore, he didn't give it up. He said, I will win them back. And that's what the cross is all about. And those who choose to walk in fellowship and love with him, those who accept that gift of Christ's finished work and so on, are the overcomers. That's what verse 7, that overcomers, 1 John 5, overcomers are those who believe, put their faith in Christ. So you have overcome that rebellion and sin by faith in Christ. Jim, yeah. these perfect bodies that we have, will we recognize one another? It's Yeah, I think so. That's, again, the Bible doesn't specifically say that you will recognize, but the, the things that you see in, in little snippets that seem to indicate, yes, we will recognize one another. Because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, and it's a long chapter on the resurrection, and he describes the nature of the resurrection body. There's both a continuity and a discontinuity. Continuity between the old and the new. It's going to be the same body. It's going to have the same characteristics, but it's going to be new and capable of sin. Kind of like Christ. Exactly, exactly. And that's the inference that we draw, because did the disciples recognize Jesus? I mean, a couple of times it says he hid himself, in other words, from them. But as soon as he removed that veil, they saw who he was. And, you know, Peter is out fishing and he sees somebody standing on the seashore and he's, oh, that's Jesus. And he jumps out of the boat and runs for him. How did he know it was him? Because in his new glorified resurrected body, it was the same. It looked like Jesus. But it has new quality. He passes through walls. He, you know, goes from one part to the, uh, to the other part instantly. So it just seems uh, reasonable to conclude that we will recognize one another and we will be in fellowship as a part of that with uh, those we care about as well as with the Lord and so on. Last question on that. Uh, at what age phrase are we going to be in? I mean, if I was 90, oh, year, 90 years old yeah. or if I was... Six months young and beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Yeah, you know that that is getting beyond what God has chosen to reveal to us. But um, I think the, the 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 reasonable way to look at this again, following some of the terms Paul uses in chapter fifteen, is mature adults. And what exactly that means? But we define mature adults the way we talk about it in both physiology and psychology, you know, the capable of thinking and reasoning and your body is, is, is grown and fully developed. And so, again, um, perhaps the model, if that's the right way to think about it, is when God created um, Adam and Eve, he did not create Adam as a baby, he created him as a, an adult. 
you know, functioning adult, and same with Eve. So it would seem that um, that's probably how we would, would want to think about our resurrected, glorified bodies that will be a part of the, of the new heaven and new earth and so on. So, uh, yeah, that's how I, I think it's just probably reasonable to conclude that. All right. <clears throat> Verse 9. Now, here's where, what time is it? It's 25 after. Uh, I'll tell you what, I'm not going to read every single one of these verses, but I'm going, to, I'm going to go through it quickly. Here's where I'd like you to just have this little handout that I gave you. This is a way to try to do this. It is not necessarily, I've seen different people try to take and put it into a visual and so it's, it's really hard to know how we should always interpret some of these things because it is, it is really difficult. And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven plagues came and spoke with me. Okay, now that, that should just take you back to previous chapters, the seven bowl judgments. One of those angels come, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. He carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone. It's a stone of crystal clear jasper. Now, you must, and I I hate to drive this home, but you must notice the similes. Like as, like as, like as. You you remember what a simile is, a figure of speech. It's describing something, and it's saying, what I see is like a costly stone. What I see is as a crystal clear. See what I'm saying? It isn't necessarily crystal clear Jasper. It's saying it's as that. John is looking for how do I describe what I see? And as you do, when uh, you try to describe something, and particularly if you're talking on the phone or you're doing email or something, you're trying to describe something you see, you use figurative language because you want this picture. You want this person that's hearing you or reading you, you want them to get a word picture of what you're seeing. So you're painting a word picture. Do you understand what I mean by that? That's what John is doing here. And he's using figurative as, like, as, like, as, like. And they're called similes, and that just means this is absolutely awesome. It's unlike anything any human being has ever seen. And so John is trying to describe it using similes, uh, just piled one on top of another. Verse 11, having the glory of God, her brilliance was like a very, I already read that. Verse 12, it had a great and high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels. Names were written on them, which are those of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates to the east, three gates to the north, three gates to the south, and three gates to the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on those were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Now, it is really, really, really important for you to catch the symbolism of that. The 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles, Jew and Gentile together. This isn't just for the Jews and it isn't just for the Gentiles. It's all of those who have put their faith in the Lamb. It's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, fulfilled. That in Christ there is no longer Jew, Gentile, slave, free, everybody is equal. And so all, I mean, I don't think it's that difficult, but all it's telling us is 
that this Jew and Gentile, and it, note again that importance of the, of the number 12. And the one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its walls. And the city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as its width. And he measured the city 1,500 miles, and length and width and height is equal. And he measured its wall, 72 yards, that's about 216 feet, according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. Human and angelic measurements come together. And the material of the wall was jasper. The city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city wall were done with every kind of precious stone. First foundation was jasper, second sapphire, third chalcedony, fourth emerald, fifth sardonyx, and on and on, on verse 21. And the 12 gates with 12 pearls, and each one of the gates was a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like, notice similarly, transparent glass. And I saw no, no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple which takes you back to verse 3. God is dwelling among his people. There's no need for tabernacle, temple, or any physical because it's completely been fulfilled in Christ. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine upon it, for the glory of the Lord illumined it. And its lamp is the, uh, is, is the lamb. And the nation shall walk by its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there shall be no night there, the gates will never be closed, and they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination or lying shall ever be in it. Only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Now, there is a lot that is being explained to us in verse 24, 25, and 26 that you can miss easily. In notes, I tried to elaborate on it just a little bit. It's telling us something. It's telling us something. We're going to be very busy and very active and very involved. Because it says, the nations will walk by light, the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. Verse 26, they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. What's that talking about? We are going to be very busy in the new heavens and new earth. We're going to be bringing the fruits of all that we do to the Lord. So, I mean, it just, you start thinking, oh, what does that mean? What does that, and it's, it's just, you know, Lord, could you add like two or three more chapters to really flesh out verse 26 and really flesh out verse 24 for me in some detail? What does that mean? And doesn't do that. And I think part of the reason is, and this is a, a judgment of mine, but part of the reason is you and I are finite and temporal people. And you know what finite means, limited? You and I are finite. It's just our nature is created. It's just nature. It's who we are. God is talking here about something infinite and eternal. And you and I don't have a category for really understanding that. You, you, you know what I mean? So God just says, I'm going to give you a very, very, very broad framework. But I always go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Eye has not seen, nor ear has heard, nor the mind of man conceived all that God has planned for those who love him. It's almost like he's saying, I'm telling you just a little bit, but you've got to wait. Because for me to really start trying to explain all this, in human language, trying to... Describe the infinite and the eternal to the finite and temporal. That's pretty difficult. So it's like he's saying, I'm going to tell you a little bit. Can you wait? (laughs) 
And I'm saying, no, I want you to explain to me. I mean, it's really hard. It's frustratingly hard because you say, what does that mean? We'll bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. What does that mean? What does it mean? The nations and the kings shall bring their glory into the, into the capital city of God's new heaven and new earth. What does that mean? It doesn't explain it to us. It really doesn't explain it. But it would seem it's reasonable and logic to infer that we are going to be very busy in the new heaven and new earth, working, having stewardship responsibilities over the new heaven and new earth in the name of God. That's what God said in Genesis 1. If the new heaven and new earth is eaten restored, then the things that God wanted Adam and Eve to do and all their descendants before sin was to be creative cultivators with him. Why would that not also be the case here? Being creative cultivators in the new heavens and new earth with God. I think that seems very reasonable. And so that's how, um, that's how I think we should just draw little tidbits of inference and conclusions that this, this is describing very, very, very briefly. We will be busy serving the Lord in the new heavens and new earth. So, so this is an attempt to give a visual to what we just read about. I and mean, it's really it's really hard. You look at that, oh my goodness, that's kind of amazing. <laughs> but it's it, it's again if if the language means anything, this is just an attempt to give a visual to what what is being described as the capital city of the new heaven and the new earth. <clears throat> so, with 11 minutes left and one chapter <clears throat> to go, do you have any questions about chapter 21, which is sort of a ludicrous thing to do, but... I've got a question. It says it's going to be 1,500 miles long. Is that... Is that like that's, a big city, or...? That's what... Uh, that's... If if those measurements mean anything in verse 16, yes. It's a square, so it's 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles. Wow. Joe. <laughs> what is outside these walls? Well, this is the capital city, so outside the walls are the so rest of the new heaven. Inside. Have, Sorry, Say all, that again. All, all the people. Not necessarily. Are, no. Are not no, no, that's right. It's still a that's right. functioning planet. That's right. That new Nebraska. heavens, new earth. Pardon? Still in Nebraska. Yeah, well, <laughs> or Bavaria. But, <laughs> no, that, this is a description. I, and I, it doesn't say capital city. I'm using you know, 21st century sure, way of I describing it. But this is God's capital, if you will. This is, this is where he will be manifesting himself, if I can put it that way. That's why it's so hard. I mean, you just, you're, you, you ought to, when you start talking about this, you begin to really understand the limitations of human language dealing with the eternal and the infinite. And that's really the struggle. I think that's the struggle John had as he's writing this. But under the inspiration of the Spirit, he's putting down what God wants him to put down. But yes, do, do not think all the humans that inhabit the new heaven and new earth that have put their faith in Christ and so on are just in the walls of this. That would not be the right way to think about it. This is the capital, okay, if you will.
All right. So the, do I infer, since there are no questions, you understand well, Chapter question. 21? <laughs> it's the obvious. What would be the need for walls? I mean, if we've got all believers and no sin, no evil anymore. Well, perhaps the most important aspect of it is the gates are open all time. Remember, where did we read that? Um, I, somewhere I read that. I remember it's in this passage. Yeah, talks about the yeah there it is. And uh, but it's no, there's another where it says. Show me where it is. It's in the uh, where is it? Uh, verse twenty-five. Is it twenty-five? Yeah. Yeah, the gates will never be closed. That's it. The gates will never be closed. Now, that um, you know, I don't know if I can answer the question why are there walls. Um, but that the gates are open or, or gates are never closed, the way it's described in verse 25, indicates you're not going to have to worry about security issues or any, anything like that. I, but other than that, I don't know. I, I do not know why God chooses to have walls around. But this is the capital city, and um, it will be uh, where he manifests himself. So, who, who else will be on the earth at that time besides those that are chosen by God? Well, we can we can put it that way, or you can put it another way. All of those who have put their faith and trust in God and who have been justified, to use the words that Paul uses in the New Testament, they will be all the Old Testament saints, all of the New Testament saints, all of those that came to faith during the tribulation period will all be here. But it says, nothing impure will enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful but only those names that are written in the Lamb of God. That's right. Does that mean that there'll be... No, 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 no. Now he's telling us in verse 27 what he told us earlier and what we see throughout um, uh, this this section that all all sin, all evil, all all is all in the lake of fire. It's it's a reminder again, again Nothing of the old will be in the new. That's you know what a what a wonderful and all the struggles with sin, all of the temptations, everything will be all gone. And again, it and that in effect answers your question. The, the Lamb's Book of Life that that we've seen the book before. It's those who have put their faith are written in that book. So it's just saying, if your name's not in the book, you won't be here. And the horrible aspect of that. Is yet uh, that person would be in like a car. All right. I don't know if we'll get 22 finished, but we'll get started, I suppose. And he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. So that means from the city, from the capital city, if you will. In the middle of its street, and on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve. Have you ever seen the phrase "tree of life" before? In Genesis. In Genesis. So again, there, there's the the bookends of Scripture. I mean, Eden, new heavens, new earth. I don't think that's a coincidence. Bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit from every mount, and leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. The word there for healing is therapuo, 
What word do we get from therapeuo? Therapeutic. This is health giving. It's part of the complete renewal of everything. And there shall no longer be any curse. Genesis 3, the curse is lifted. And the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. And his bondservants shall serve him. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. Shall see his face. What does the Bible say? No man has ever seen God and lived. Now you'll see God. I don't, I don't know what that means. You know, we'll see God face to face. It's, it's, it certainly is a reflection of the incredible intimacy and fellowship we will enjoy with God. What Adam and Eve, I think it would be correct to say this, what Adam and Eve enjoyed in that fellowship and communion with God will be restored here. I told you this, but my wife says, Adam and Eve are the only human beings that know what they lost. <laughs> you and I will gain it, but they, they will regain it. You, find, you know what I mean by when Peggy said that? The only human beings who know what they lost. They had that fellowship and intimacy with God face to face. They lost it. I mean, I can't, I can't imagine what that must have been like for them to have enjoyed that and then to lose it. But it'll be restored. No longer be any night. They shall not have any need of the lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God shall illumine them and they shall reign forever and ever. And the day is plural, they. It's you, that is I. So, you know, the, all aspects and dimensions of the old are replaced by the new and the new aspect. And, you know, another way of thinking about that is, is God, it says over and over again, the Old Testament and the Lord Jesus, I am the light of the world. Light is always associated with the kingdom of God, not darkness. So, so anyway, that's, um, that's kind of it. Now, I, I'll highlight a few things in verse 6 through the end because this is the... This is a conclusion, but this is kind of the end of this very, very broad overview of the new heavens and new earth. And other than just a little bit that's in Isaiah 65 and 66, and there isn't much, this is all that God chooses to tell us about the new heavens and new earth. So that description is now over. Now the rest of this book is just, and they're important verses, but that description is over. All right? Now let me highlight a couple of things with you. And he said, I'm in verse 6, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show to his bondservant the things which must shortly take place. This is John writing. And that God, the spirits of the prophets, this is all the previous prophecies of the Bible. And behold, I'm coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. And I, John, am one of who heard and saw these things. And what I heard and I saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. And the angel said to me, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren and of the prophets and those who, were, who heed the words of this book. Worship God, not me. Verse 10. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for time is near. In other words, write it. Verse 11, let the one who does wrong still do wrong. Let the one who's filthy still be filthy. Let the one who's righteous be, still practice righteousness. Let the one who's holy still keep himself holy. Um, that's a 
puzzling verse, but it's, it's saying something. There is still time to change your destiny. Those who are wrong, filthy, those who are righteous, you can still change your destiny. You can, you can still become what God wants you to become. And he says, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render every man according to what he has done. Now, when you put 11 and 12 together, you, you see something. This prophetic material is to cause us, and I think everyone around this table has already made that decision, but to cause us to think about eternity. Because one of the major purposes of prophetic scripture is be ready and be faithful. And how do you get ready? By putting your faith in Christ and then to be faithful. And so it's, it's like it's the final call. Remember why I've written all of this. I am the Alpha Omega. I'm the first and the last. I'm the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter the gates into the city. And remember, wash their robes. They're believers. You've seen that throughout the scripture. When you put your faith in Christ, your robes are washed with the blood of the Lamb. You're now pure and righteous in his eye. But outside that New heaven and new earth are dogs, sorcerers, immoral persons, murderers, idolaters, and everyone loves and practices lying. You will not see them in the new heaven and new earth. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you uh, these things for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star. That root, offspring, root takes you back to Jeremiah 23 and 24. Offspring of David, that's the Messiah, Son of David, the Messianic King, and the bright and the morning star. Again, that's out of Isaiah. And the Spirit and the bride say, come. And the one who hears says, come. And let one who's thirsty come. Let one who wishes to take the water of life without cost. It's still time to respond. And he says, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of this book, God will take away this part from the tree of life and the holy city which is written in the book. That's very, very similar to what's in Deuteronomy 4 and 12. Point. Don't add or take away anything from this book that I've written. Don't have the authority to do that. And Jesus concludes, yes, I'm coming quickly. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. That phrase at the end of verse 20, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly, was a saying that was throughout the ancient church, first century church. We see it a lot in extra-biblical stuff we found. They would pray this again and again and again, come quickly, Lord Jesus, come quickly. It's 2,000 years later, we're still saying, come quickly, Lord Jesus, come quickly. <clears throat> At least I think we should be, don't you? Right? That's the only answer. So, well, I went over a little bit, but I want—I really wanted to finish this. So, uh, tomorrow, our—not uh, right. What to say it? Um, in two weeks, because next week's that lecture. But then, in two weeks, I want to do some tying up of a bunch of loose ends, and I have some other things I want to give you, but I um, didn't. We did run out of time, so. 
it, we don't get to say this very often in this class, but we have finished this book. <laughs> so, you know, we really are. So this has been a long study. We started with Daniel, and I, I'm not sure how many months we've been on this, but it's... Daniel July, started in June. July. Of? June? Actually, July of 15. Okay, so, so July of 15. Okay, so we've... Been, months, huh? Yeah, going on maybe even eight months. That's a long time. But good. Well, we did it, and that, I think, is all due to your patience and long-suffering with my teaching. So I hope it has been a, a blessing to you. All right, let me pray here. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for uh, this study that we begun uh, way last summer and uh, have gotten through the final part of this study, the framework that starts with Daniel, and then as the pieces are filled in through the Olivet Discourse of Jesus, Paul's uh, words in First and Second Thessalonians, and now the book of Revelation, it gives us a framework for understanding your plan. And it's, uh, it's an amazing story, and it's an amazing set of promises for each and every one of us. And the one thing we know for certain, despite the, the difficulty we have trying to get our arms around something that's infinite and eternal, is that the beauty and glory and majesty that is described in these last two chapters is our inheritance. It's our destiny. We will be there we will be a part of the new heaven and new earth, ruling and reigning with you. It's just an amazing truth. It gives us excitement, but as we just read, it also is to encourage us to be ready and to be faithful because we do not know when this is going to happen, but we know it is going to happen, and we will be a part of all of these things as you wrap up human history around the return of your son, his kingdom which purges and cleanses the earth, and then introduces the new heaven and new earth. It's an exciting, thrilling prospect, and we praise you for it. We are thankful for the promise of your grace. As we are ready, and we will say, as the early church prayed, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And we conclude with that in your son's name. Amen.